Okay, and uh, welcome to another edition of Class in the Bunker. Uh, and and I'm, I'm grateful that you guys are able to, to join us on a what is a beautiful uh, Sabbath day in uh, here in Plano, Texas. Uh, and sun shining and what a great chance that we have to get together as a group and to be able to share this. Uh, it's, it's fun as we, uh, as I hear from all of you, given that this is a live video and it's happening right now, please take a moment and just let us know where you're, uh, where you're coming from so you get a chance to see each other uh, going back and forth. That's what makes uh, a live video so great uh, on this morning. So now, as we get started today, um, Something that uh, we came across uh, in the Book of Mormon tipped me to uh, some things that we're going to see today with Paul. Um, the Book of Mormon always, you know, it, it opens with this, with this kind of an eerie scene, and we're not quite sure what to do with it. And that is, we have it. It opens with a teenage boy with a sword and a drunken man, and. He needs the plates from this drunken man, and the question is, what will he do with the sword, and how will he get the plates? And, and Nephi, in kind of telling on himself, he's struggling with this a little bit, and he says, I was constrained by the spirit uh, that I should kill Laban. Wow. Well, that, that idea of uh, being constrained, think of it as uh, constraining like being held, Sometimes that's being held back. I was held back. Uh, and sometimes constrained means I'm kind of being held and moved forward to places that I really don't want to go to. Constrained is a battle. Uh, and think about how often that Nephi has given us this idea of saying, I was constrained to do something I didn't really want to do. Well, how often when, when we struggle with things in our life are we constrained? we would really like to go here. And the Lord constrains us to say, you need to go there. And then what happens is a wrestle. Jacob in the Old Testament wrestles with an angel, right? Uh, I'm, I'm wanting this, I need this, I need a blessing, I'm gonna wrestle. Uh, Enos wrestles with the spirit for a remission of his sins, we wrestle. And spiritual knowledge gained from heaven can be a constraining. It can be a battle. We wish the Lord would always tell us to do exactly what we want to do. That would be great. But so rarely is like, I want to go here, Lord, and I'm constrained to go there. Darn it. I don't want to do that, and yet I'm being forced to do that. Uh, that seems to be the way that the Lord works. And... And not only that, often he doesn't even tell us why he wants us to do it or what will it turn out to be. Uh, for Lehi, in the very first part of the Book of Mormon, 1 Nephi 8, he's constrained, constrained by the Spirit to go into a wilderness. And what happens when he gets there, it's dark and it's worse than where he was. Sometimes the Spirit constrains us to do things and the result is worse. And, and, we're, and we wonder and we worry as to why would he have me do things I don't want to do. And in fact, I prayed for deliverance and what I got was more. That's what constraining is. It says I'm 
above my natural man, above my desires, I'm having to go a certain direction. Well, I, when, when I was reading through this section that we're talking about today with Paul, we get this same kind of constraining, only the word that Paul uses is, uh, and now I am going to Jerusalem. Remember, he's, he's in Miletus, and he's with the people that love him, and they're saying, please don't go. Then he gets to Caesarea, and they're saying, you will be bound if you go to Jerusalem. Everything says you would be an idiot to go to Jerusalem. They're going to bind you, and they're probably going to kill you. And then he says, and now I am going to Jerusalem compelled by the Spirit to basically compelled to go to my death. And the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit witnesses that imprisonment and trials await me in every city. Wow. This is a man that probably still has post-traumatic stress from being in prison in Ephesus. Remember, he said he was beaten with a rod in synagogues five times. Generally, that beating is 39 lashes or 39 beatings. 40 would be too much. They're afraid 40 may cause death, so they would do 39 in the synagogues. And he says that happened to him five times. And in one play, in one instance, remember, in the, on his first mission, they stone him, and he's dead. And they have to bring him up. And then he makes it to the next place, still bleeding and, and uh, struggling. And we'll talk about in a second what I think came as a result of some of those uh, beatings. But here is a man who is literally being walked to go to a place he does not want to go because he knows what's coming for him. Now, when we're looking at this last part of the book of Acts, I know that the book of Acts is kind of the books of the Acts of the Apostles. Well, that really isn't true. Uh, there are instances, for instance, where there are years between some of the verses that the writers of Acts have put in there and they're skipping over and they're editing uh, along the way. Um, but make no mistake about it, the, the book of Acts is really the book of the Acts of Paul. The first part of the book of Acts is a setup for the journeys of Paul. And one of the ways that we can tell is that these writers, especially, and we know that the, at least one of the writers of Acts, maybe the, the only writer of Acts, we don't know, accompanies Paul for certain parts of the journey, and he's with him at this part. At least we know he came from Miletus down to Caesarea and then to Jerusalem. But he's going to spend the last five chapters of Paul's arrest uh, the last five chapters of the book on Paul's arrest where everything else has years and gaps and big and, and, and the way that we do it the last five chapters are about Paul's arrest and then his trip to Rome and then it's done so there is a setup here and you have to realize that this book as it's being written to future generations, I don't know whether those writers of Acts are looking at this and saying, wow, 2,000 years from now, here's what they'll read. As much as anything, I think they're looking, the people that are living now, as soon as we get this written up and we get it disseminated, it's going to go to people that knew Paul, that, were, that heard him preaching. Uh, it's really first century, first generation 
that I think is most on their minds as they're getting ready to do this. And so they want to know the circumstances by which uh, Paul is arrested and how he ends up going to Rome uh, against his will, even though he still wanted to go on to Spain. Uh, Now, so what does this last part uh, look like, and why is this important to us as Latter-day Saints? Well, here's here's part of what uh, Paul found. I call it Paul's dilemma. <laughs> so, so l- l- let me give you kind of a kind of a weird little uh, framing of this, if I can. Imagine that uh, you grow up in a home where you learn the piano, but what you really learn is how to play chopsticks on the piano, and you get really good at playing chopsticks and you play it really well and the family always loves that you sit down at the piano and play chopsticks they love that okay now at a certain point you you age you go off to school you go to europe you start to learn from the masters uh about beethoven and brahms and uh, schubert and all of these great uh classics And not only do you learn about them, you begin to teach about theory and how they work and how they, what they understood. And, and, and you start to write about all of these great masters and off that information goes and people are following your writings because you are an expert on Beethoven uh, and Mozart and you know these things and people hang on every word that you teach and they listen to you play great concertos. And after a period of about 15 years, you go home. And when you walk in the house, you try and say to your family, you can't believe the things that I've taught and the places I've played in Vienna. And let me tell you about Beethoven. And your family says, glad you had a good experience. Sit down here and play chopsticks. That's what we like. We like chopsticks. And in fact, anything else is, you know, we don't know about that stuff, but really the beauty is in the chopsticks and we really don't care about anything else. That's Paul's dilemma. After 15 years, he comes back into Jerusalem to have his mission experiences. And let me tell you about the branch in Ephesus and these wonderful people in Philippi. And wow, you can't believe what we did in Corinth. And the Jewish leaders say to him, glad that went well. Are you telling them to circumcise or not? Because see, a decade and a half again, we told them in those settings, okay, we're not going to worry so much about circumcision. Just make sure you don't eat the meat from idols and bring us some money. And what he finds out is that this branch of the church in Jerusalem is so provincial and so stuck on how they balance the the uh, circumcision and the law of Moses that they've missed the entire theological explosion that Paul writes about in Romans about circumcision of the heart and the coming of King Jesus and how all of this works and he's written and he's followed and it's deep and it's and the do- doctrine and understanding and he comes back and this church is is like well now it's about it's really about the law of Moses uh, and why don't you stick to that now to be fair and we're going to talk about timelines in just a second 
But to be fair, the leaders in the Jerusalem branch were balancing a growing, fomenting rebellion against Rome. And it was a hardening of the zealots and, and Jerusalem leaders that were started that, that had to balance every day that were members of the way we believe in Christ but we're trying to balance the coming pressure that's coming from the elders from the Sanhedrin from the zealots that, that we're trying to prove that yes we're Christian but we're really still Jewish really we are don't attack us be nice to us so they are they are balancing a very difficult situation uh, and and the brother of, of uh, Jesus, James, is is the head of the church there, uh, and he's balancing very carefully. But he has in his midst a very hardcore group of rigorists, rigorous that are pushing back, and they are not being aided. We'll talk more about this in a minute. But we have Jewish leaders coming out of Ephesus that had first experience with Paul may have been involved in his arrest and his torture and punishment in Ephesus and they have ne- they've been following Paul from town to town and now they've followed him to Jerusalem and now they have a plot in mind how much of that plot James knew about is hard to know probably very very little he knew there was danger but for James he thought well Maybe we can find a way to set the Jewish minds at ease. Uh, and so we're going to try and placate these guys a little bit, if we can do that. Okay. So, Paul, great mission. Glad you're here. Understand that you've been preparing to take a vow in the temple uh, of purity. You're still a believing Jew. That's nice. That's reassuring to us. But to prove your... Uh, worthiness and to prove your adherence to the law of Moses and to do a public display of that to everybody who might be questioning we have these four guys you don't know who they are but we need you to take four guys and pay for them probably out of the coffers of the money that he brought with him from the Greek saints Take these four guys into the temple and everybody will know because you're going to be there uh, and they'll know that you're one of us and it will go well. Now, again, I have to think about Paul sitting there saying, they want me to play chopsticks and I would love to teach them all about the kingdom, but maybe at least for this right now, I'll go play chopsticks. I will take these guys up to the temple after a week's purification and we'll go to the temple. We'll get this thing over with. Now, we know that when Paul gets up onto the temple mount that uh, the temple was divided off into several areas. The outer court was the the court of the Gentiles and anybody Roman citizens anybody Roman soldiers uh, could walk around in here in fact the the uh, the citadel and the barracks uh, are just off to the side of of this they could walk around here anybody could the inside was court of women court of Jewish women and it was restricted to them and then they would walk into this place and then you get the inner the, the holy place temple 
uh, and then the Holy of Holies is back in there. Now, after the destruction of Jerusalem, they found several stones, this being one of them, that is in the, uh, it's in the museum in, uh, in uh, Istanbul that was taken back by the Byzantines, uh, taken back there. And I know since all of you can read Greek, but you can't necessarily see this on the screen, uh, what this basically says here is that you are not allowed, if, if, you are not a, if you're not a Jew, you're not allowed to go any further uh, under the penalty of death. And those, these stones sat right here along the balustrades uh, leading into the temple. So uh, at, for Paul, he could bring Greeks, he could bring anybody he wanted to into the visitor center area out here, out into the outer courtyard. But if you cross over those balustrades with the, that warning, not only are you punishable by death, but you have profaned the temple and you have profaned the law of Moses. Here's where the plot was hatched by these rigorous coming from Ephesus to try and now capture Paul. They lied in wait. They waited until Paul brought them into this area and crossed over the balustrade with these four unknown men to him. And then the place went crazy. They started to scream and yell and attack Paul that he was now profaning the temple. Now, it's a, it is a little bit odd uh, when you think about it that... Uh, what they were saying is that he had brought uncircumcised Greeks into the temple place. Now, we don't have any way of saying whether or not they stopped to say, well, let us take you off to the side and do a quick examination whether you're circumcised or not. Uh, all the, there was just a presumption of guilt, and if they were going to yell loud enough, they would stir things up and it would get really bad. How bad did it get? These guys were really good. Uh, in pure uh, kind of zealot fashion, they started ripping their clothes. They took dirt. They're throwing it in the air. It's just this massive cacophony of sound against, this is the man that's been going all over Greece, telling them that they don't have to obey the circumcision. And they're trying to, and now he's come here and he's profaned the temple and he's brought these guys with him. In fact, we know one of these one of these Greeks. They traveled with him, uh, and and now and now it's on. And now the mob rises up, and they attack Paul, and they begin to beat him, uh, and he begins to bleed. Now, in the midst of all this cacophony, these Roman soldiers out here would have responded to all of this noise and sound, obviously, right? Um, and they come running and they rescue Paul from the midst of this. And they're now going to take him and they're going to have him uh, examined by the magistrate. And by the way, how would they examine to know whether he had actually done this thing or not? Uh, well, they did it through torture. The belief was is that we put him on the rack and we start to torture him. He'll tell the truth. 
So they're going to take him up to the barracks of the Antonio Fortress, probably, that sat there on the north side overlooking the whole temple grounds, to have that done. Now, Paul is going to do something actually quite amazing here. Um, what Paul is going to do is, as they're on their way up those steps, Paul is going to turn, uh, first of all, in Greek, to the soldiers to say he wants to say a few words. And they will sort of go along with that. Maybe this will calm everything down. So when Paul stands up there to speak, it calms for a little bit. And then he breaks out in Aramaic. And what we get uh, through all of, uh, of this next speech is Paul speaking in Aramaic to the crowd that's going to be carefully listening below. Now, let's stop for just a second. Can you think of anything Paul might say right now that would save him? At all. He's not going to get up there and say there is no Christ. He's not going to get up there and say, uh, I denounce the law of Moses. Uh, and not only that, whatever he's going to say ain't going to be believed. <laughs> there's, there's absolutely nothing he can do to stop his... Uh, condition about what's going to occur to him. That's why what he does here is fascinating and I think what he does here is actually a little bit different in my mind what we maybe kind of assumed that he's doing. Here's what Paul does. In essence he stands up to bear his testimony and his con he's going to tell his conversion story. It's like open mic Sunday, <laughs> the first Sunday let me tell you how I got to this place, you know, and, and I, was, I was a Pharisee. I was uh, taught by Gamaliel. Uh, I was zealous for the law. Uh, I, I, I did all of these things, all of these things, all of these things. Uh, and then let me tell you what happened on the road to Damascus. And he goes down, here's what I saw, here's what I experienced on the road to Damascus. And here's what, here's what Jesus told me. Then Paul does something very interesting uh, that as I've looked at this, I had to read this a few times before I think I, I finally understood uh, what he's doing. Paul says in Acts 22, When I had returned to Jerusalem... This is 14, after, 14 years after his experience on the Damascus Road. And while praying in the temple, this is the first time he'd come back, I fell into a trance and I saw him, meaning Jesus. We don't always know that there was at least two uh, uh, visitations that he had from the Savior. Actually, there's a third one that's coming while he's still in jail in Caesarea. But um, we don't understand that he had two very clear uh, experiences with the Savior. While praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, hurry and depart from Jerusalem quickly, this is Jesus, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Wow. Leave now. Then listen to Paul be constrained. 
The Spirit is telling him what to do, but here is his wrestle uh, with Jesus. Uh, and I think very much that he wants to do something very important to him. I replied, Lord, they know, they know, these, these people, they know that I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you in synagogue after synagogue. They know that. Now, stop for a second here. Remember, Paul is telling this story standing on the tops of the stairs flanked by Roman soldiers and I believe that he's bleeding. And he's certainly disheveled. He's been beaten up and bloodied. And he is saying to the crowd flanked by Roman soldiers, Lord, they know I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you in synagogue after synagogue in the same way that I have been beaten. I believe what he then does is not just a retelling of his testimony. I think it's a confessional. I think he confessed it years ago to the Savior before he started his mission. And I think he is now publicly confessing it to the assembled crowd. Because he's looking at them and saying, I imprisoned and beat those who believed. And, and, and not only that, here's what else I did. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being poured out, I was standing by and approved of it and watching over the clothing of those who killed him. Long ago, the Savior had had this, he'd had this conversation with the Savior. In other words, he's saying, I am so sorry that I did this. These are great people. And I was involved in their imprisonment and in their beatings and for some even their deaths like Stephen. I did this. And he's standing on the stairs flanked by Roman soldiers telling them that. He is confessing to everyone, yes I did those things. And then he says then he said to me go because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. It's as if the Savior says, I know, I understand, but you need to leave. So one of the reasons why I'm not going to have you preach in Galilee and Judea, I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles and away from this group who will never believe you. The Savior was right. At this moment, from the stairs, he gets to this line, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They exploded again. Torn clothes, dirt in the air, absolute cacophony. And the soldiers say, that's enough. And they take him in, and we know this story. They take him into the... To, to the uh, 
the Roman centurion and we need to know if he's really telling the truth. So let's put him on the rack and let's torture him. And Paul, Paul pulls out probably at that moment his diploma, which is that, that piece of uh, uh, a wooden uh, uh, signs in a bag that say, I am a Roman citizen. Are you really going to beat a Roman citizen? And, his, and, the, and the soldier goes, wow, well, hey, I bought my freedom uh, years ago. And Paul responds, and I was born in Tarsus, a Jew and a free man and a Roman citizen. And they're like, well, okay. And, and then Paul says, and I want to appeal before Caesar, Nero. Well, if you're if Rome, if you're a Roman citizen, you got that right. You can go appeal to Caesar, to the highest court in the land. So now, yes, he, we're going to do that, and so we'll have you spend the night here, and then we're going to then we're going to put you on the road uh, to uh, to send you off to Rome. Now, again, we we know this story. Um, because of what happens uh, next. Uh, during the night, there are some meetings that are held here, and it, it, it gets better. So here's the plot. Uh, when it was day, the Jews, meaning these elders, made a plot and swore an oath between themselves not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Okay? If, if you've got, if you've got uh, uh, youth... And you want to tell a great primary story? You can have you can have uh, Ammon chopping off arms, or this is also a good one too. <laughs> There's all kinds of plot and intrigue here, right? Uh, there are more than forty who made this oath that they're not going to eat or drink until they have killed Paul. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, "We have agreed by an oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul." Well, as it turns out, um, this whole proceeding, we think, scholars now tend to believe that uh, this oath and this oath taking and this particular meeting was actually overheard by Paul's nephew. Whether he was there and just listening and, a, and was going to be a participant then he realized what they were doing or whether he just overheard or whatever it was. But Paul's nephew saves the day, tells the Romans what's going to happen. They then listen, they believe, and in the middle of the night, then they're going to, they're going to put together a large convoy to take Paul back the 50 miles up the road to Caesarea uh, to get him up to, the, to uh, Herod Agrippa's and Felix's court in Caesarea on the coast. And they get him, and they issue him quickly out of out of town now why I think uh, some of this is important is that I need you to see how this sets the stage for what is about to happen in Jerusalem because here's here's what will happen next if we're going to look at first century history and so here's your uh, here's your uh, history lesson for the day right um, Historians of the time, uh, this is a first century historian, gives us this. 
And uh, at the moment, I can't remember the name of the historian, uh, but he's writing in the first century. And here's so pretty close to what happened. He says, when Paul appealed to Caesar and was sent to Rome, ultimately by Festus, the Jews were disappointed of the hope in which they had devised the plot against him. And what are they going to do? Well, it's a little bit like what happened in Ephesus or in Corinth when they couldn't get Paul that they wanted. They turned their wrath on the, another guy. Well, in this case, the guy that they felt like had let Paul off the hook was James, the brother of Jesus. They turned their attention to James, the Lord's brother, who had been elected by the apostles to the Episcopal throne, by then they were called the Episcopal, at Jerusalem. This is the crime they committed against him. Now, remember again that James, in his life, in the Savior's lifetime, did not believe Jesus. That it was only after Jesus' death and resurrection that he came to believe in Jesus in uh, Christ <laughs> like some brothers would do that right uh, uh, and so remember when uh, Paul says hey when Jesus was was uh, resurrected he first was seen by Mary and Martha he says this in 1 Corinthians uh, 15 he was first seen by Mary and Martha then he saw uh, Peter and and the other James uh, and then he was seen by the 12 and then he was or then he was seen by James and we talked about in another class that sweet reunion between the resurrected Christ and James, his brother, who didn't believe until that moment. That's a millennial story we're going to want to hear. When that millennial movie, in the millennium, we want to see that moment, the, the uh, reconciliation between the risen Christ and his earthly brother, James. But from that, James became an ardent uh, supporter uh, was leading the church uh, in Jerusalem uh, and, and again they're going to turn their wrath on him and then it says uh, they brought they the elders brought James into their midst and in the presence of the whole populace demanded a denial of his belief in Christ but declaring that our Savior and Lord Jesus was the Son of God, they could not endure his testimony any longer. So they killed him. Now, the timing on this becomes important, I think. Uh, and here's our, so here's our uh, quick timeline for the day, because you always want to understand first century history, right? Um, so what happens in 59 A.D., is when Paul is arrested and the Jewish elders plot and vow his death. He's going to be held in, in Caesarea for a couple of years uh, and, it, and ultimately then he'll be sent off uh, to Rome by uh, Festus. But in that same year, 62 AD, this is when James is killed. Now, I think it's important to understand uh, what happens next is that it's just four years later, in a matter of months, in 66 AD, what will happen is the Jewish revolt will actually begin in, in Jerusalem. That the, uh, the, the Roman leader in Jerusalem trying to raise taxes will go in and rob the temple coffers of money. That will result in a riot and, and uh, revolts. Uh, he will respond by killing 3,000 
about 3,200 Jews lot by crucifixion in and around Jerusalem. This is just four years later. Greek mobs will attack the synagogue and burn it in Caesarea. And the revolt will be full on. And, and, and the zealots, uh, led by the Sicarii, the daggermen, these, these uh, guerrillas that would sneak among the crowds and, and uh, stab people with daggers at festivals and things like that, and then slide it back into the crowd, uh, were fomenting. The zealots in the, in the wilderness were fomenting. And finally, the people rise up uh, against Roman rule uh, all the way across there, and that will result... Uh, in bringing um, the full Roman might down out of Caesarea, or out of uh, Syria, and they will make they will na- now take the next three or four or five years to slowly march down, down through all of Judea and Samaria and the Galilee, and wipe out town after town after town. Submit or die. But even if you submit, we may pillage the town. And they will systematically snake their way through, destroying all of these towns as they slowly come down towards Jerusalem. Titus will, himself will lead a legion uh, uh, up the Jericho Road from Jericho over the Mount of Olives and they will lay siege for five months to Jerusalem until it is destroyed and burned. And that ultimately will happen in 70 uh, AD. This is just just a few years removed from James is being killed, Paul is being taken to Rome. We're right on the precipice of all of this occurring. And all of these tranquil images that we have of Capernaum, and the Sermon on the Mount, and and the widow of Nain, and all of these wonderful people and believers in Jerusalem and in surrounding areas is about to be destroyed, and, and the dysphoria, the scattering of Jews will be full on, and they will be driven out of their land. And, and so this idea of vowing the death of anybody who would side at all with the Romans. You can see where it's already happening in the years as we approach uh, that time. This is, this is the setting that we're looking at, and this is the setting where, where Paul is ultimately, uh, in a sense, almost rescued. But this is also the reason, one of the reasons why we have to look at Paul as kind of the savior almost of Christianity. Had he not preached to the Gentiles, had he not established house churches all over the Mediterranean, when this heavy-handed come, if the church had just stayed in Israel, it would have been wiped out along with the Jewish people. It had to be moved and it had to be offloaded to the Gentiles. And it was. Now, uh, one last thing uh, before, we, uh, before we wrap this up. One last note. Uh, and, it, and it's kind of a commentary, on, I think, on the state of where Paul was uh, at the moment. When he is taken off to Caesarea, uh, and, and Felix uh, in Caesarea is going to hold on to him, we think, and he holds on to him for two years, 
And, and the reason he holds on to him is probably pretty simple. Uh, most scholars say that Felix held on to Paul for two years, not sending him to Rome, because he kept waiting for a bribe. <laughs> he, wanted to be, he wanted to be paid off. Uh, it was what he did. That's one of the reasons why Felix will be removed. Festus will come in and immediately send Paul off to Rome. Felix is waiting for graft, and he's waiting for somebody to pay for him. And, these, and he heard he had money, right? But these Jews don't seem to have much money, and especially these followers of the way. They seem to be poor as church mind. He was really kind of hoping they would come, but they don't. Okay, so... Paul is taken to Caesarea. They tell Ananias to come up, the, the high priest, uh, to come and, and, and uh, grill him and let us know what he did that was so wrong. While looking directly at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my day with a clear conscience before God before this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood near him to strike him on the mouth. That's when Paul says to him, God is about to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> you know, it's Paul being Paul, right? Um, are you sitting there judging according to the law and contrary to the law? You order me to be struck? And then we get this little piece of uh, knowledge here. And those who stood by nearby said, Are you insulting God's high priest? Paul replied, I did not know, brothers, that it was the high priest. Brothers and sisters, Paul knew Ananias. He had known Caiaphas. He had served the Sanhedrin two, two decades earlier in being zealous for the law and persecuting Christians. He knew Caiaphas and he knew Ananias, his, his uh I think his uh, nephew. And for him in that setting to stand in the presence of Ananias and not recognize him goes a little bit to what some scholars have believed was Paul's um, weakness in the flesh. And that was his eyesight. He says at one point that he, there were brothers in some of these house churches that would have given their eyes for him. If you look simply at the fact of all the beatings that Paul endured, what are the chances of some kind of dramatic, uh, traumatic head injury, closed head injury, something that, or just just old age? But the chance of after all these beatings that maybe it would have affected his eyesight, and this gives us some idea. For when he says, I, I'm standing in front of the high priest that I know, and I don't even recognize him. Maybe because his eyesight was dimming, and he couldn't see as well. Either temporarily or permanently, we don't know. But again, this is a man who's endured everything to, to stand at this point. So, before we wrap up then, Hopefully we can begin to see some of the things that this great man has went through. Uh, and now he will, he will be at Caesarea for the next couple of years. He will write uh, two letters. He will write about four. He'll write several letters, two of which we want to take a, a quick look at next week. Uh, 
the book which we call Ephesians, which was actually a circular letter and ended up with the Ephesians name on it, but he's going to write that uh, from prison in Caesarea and Colossians, which he's also going to write, and it will give us an idea of the state of, of where he is. And there's beautiful doctrine to be found as he reaches out to Gentiles to say you will be no longer uh, foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints, with us. Uh, and he's going to say that from prison. I bear you my testimony that this was a great man, <laughs> always, and that what he endured was uh, horrific at times, but being constrained by the Spirit to do things he did not want to do, he did them anyway. And the Lord was able to use him to be uh, a sword in his hands to uh, bring in uh, the kingdom, but ultimately it would cost Paul his health, it would cost him his freedom, and it would cost him ultimately his life. Uh, I bear you my testimony that these things are true, and I do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.